Uh, thanks for reading Dr. Seuss's inspiration there. <laughs> Nothing like a tongue twister for scripture when you're the lay reader. I do what I do. I don't do what I don't do. It's all, it all gets kind of confusing and the words get mixed up in our brain. I, um, I love to go to hike. But I, I'm not the kind of guy who's going to go and find a hiking trail and hike to the end of the trail. The, probably some psychologist somewhere could make money off of that statement in and of itself. I would prefer to be where there isn't a trail and to get away from people some. And so the times that I have to confess, the times that I have gone hiking like on a trail, I just can't really stay on the thing. I have to go find out what they're not wanting me to see. or That's what I feel like is going on. I don't know if that's true. Maybe they're taking me to the best places. But I feel like, don't control me. Let me go where I need to go. The, but what I do love doing is being in the mountains and um, hunting and fishing and that sort of thing. And I kind of have like this tendency to be extreme, right? Like I have an extreme personality. I, you will know like... I'm going to get all into some hobby while you know me over the next 10 or 15 years. And then all of a sudden it's going to switch to something else. And then all of a sudden it's going to switch to something else. And, and I'm all in for those things. I'm going to make friends around those things. And then I'm going to try to get those friends to go do this other deal with me or whatever. But when you're up in the mountains hunting uh, off of a trail, that can be a problem because what I'll do is I'll hear an elk bugle or I'll see one and then I just kind of start stalking that thing and I quit paying attention to where I am and the next thing, I don't know where I am. And, and then I have to work hard to try to figure out how to get back to where it is that I wanted to be. But really what happens to me all the time is I'll pick an elevation on a mountain that I want to be on. So I'll say to myself, I'm going to be two-thirds of the way up this mountain and I'm going to go across the mountain. But if you don't pay close attention and you're hiking on a mountain, the next thing that you're hiking sideways across a mountain, the next thing that might happen is you're going to find yourself going downhill because left to our own devices, we, as human beings, are going to take the path of least resistance. Every single time, if we're, if we're presented with something easy and something difficult, we may say, ah, I'm going to do this difficult thing. But we won't on our own. I'm a strong-willed guy. My mom said one of the most difficult things about raising me was raising me and not breaking my will at the same time. I have strong-willed people that live in my house, and I don't want to break their will in raising them to be adults. You know, also, parents, we're not raising children. We're raising adults. There's a difference. We need adults. We don't need grown-up kids. And so we're raising adults who just happen to be kids right now. And we, I don't want to break those adults, those future adults' will, because a strong-willed person can make really good things happen in the world with help. And a strong-willed person can make really bad things happen in the world all of their, on their own, because we will take the path of least resistance every time. That's what Paul is talking about. He's saying, look, I know the right thing to do. This should sound familiar to all of us. I don't think, I think this is a universal. We know the right thing to do. We know what we ought to be about. And we'll make up our mind, right, that this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this thing. I'm going to live this way. And the next thing you know, you're back to doing the other thing that you didn't want to do. Every time it gets so frustrating. And then in the midst of doing that other thing, you think, 
what am I doing? This is not what I wanted to do. I'm going to go do that thing. And so you go back over there and, and you, you might have two, three, four good weeks, maybe even a year of like this, I'm doing the right thing. I'm, I've even, I've actually broken that habit. But if you're not attentive and you don't have people to help you, you end up back over here doing the same stupid thing again. Paul continues on and he says, wretched man that I am. He's, he's real uh, easy on himself, by the way. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's saying the only rescue we have is Jesus. But here's the thing. Jesus said, you are the body of Christ. That's us. We need each other to do the thing that we say that we're going to do. We need each other for, here, here's the word, accountability. I told you a few weeks ago, I think, about my friend that owned the gym that I used to go to in Abilene and uh, just the kind of relationship that we built. I'll tell you exactly how that relationship started to where I knew this, this is my kind of guy. Uh, last September, I missed three days in a row at the gym. And I got a text message from him the morning of the third day that said, where have you been? That was it. It didn't say, hey man, just checking in on you. Hope everything's okay. It didn't say, I haven't seen you at church in a while. Everybody all right? It just said, where have you been? Because I had verbalized a commitment. This is what I want to do. These are the goals that I want to reach. And this is the date I want to reach them by. And he said, these are the things you're going to have to do to be able to do that. And it looked like I wasn't going to be doing them. And so he said, where have you been? Who are the people in your life that are going to say, where have you been? What we end up doing, uh, accountability to me used to mean something completely different. It, it was like, you know, the first time I started hearing the word accountability, I was in high school and it revolved around athletics and it was like a coach saying, you've got to hold each other accountable. You've got to do this thing. You've got to be at this place. And, and it, it wasn't, it didn't give life. It was based out of fear of rejection somehow, that if you don't do these things, you'll be rejected. You won't get to play. Your friends are going to get upset with you. Your teammates aren't going to like you because you're not doing the thing. And it was based out of a place of fear that is not Christian accountability. Christian accountability is based out of a place of love. Because we know we need help. And so we allow someone to say to us and ask us the hard questions. But at the same time, we're willing to ask the hard questions, not out of a way of rejecting someone, but out of a way of trying to help someone because we love them. I'm going to make a confession to you now. This is a real confession, and if I'm being completely honest, it's a little nerve-wracking, um, especially looking at this crowd and the size of it, <laughs> to make this confession. In 2007, um, I made a decision to leave the ministry I was doing and to pursue more education. And at some point, I understood that the pursuit I needed to be going after was theological studies. And so there was a school in Philadelphia that I became really interested in called Palmer Seminary. It's part of Eastern University. And so Michelle 
and I went up there with the girls. Elise was like three years old. Emery was literally, uh, I mean, just a tiny, tiny baby. She couldn't even crawl yet. And so we go up to Philadelphia, and we visit the city and the school, and it was great. And I went to some classes, and I loved the classes. I learned things in them. And uh, before we left, we made a down payment on housing because I was like, this is where we're going. We're moving to Philadelphia, a long way from Carlsbad, New Mexico. And I, we just start, people started saying things like, you should just sell your cars. And I was like, oh, pump the brakes now. <laughs> I'm from the West. We need our cars. I don't know about you people back there, but I'm not taking a bus or a subway everywhere I go because what if my kid falls down and breaks her arm? I'm not waiting for a, uh, an ambulance. We're going to jump in the pickup and go. That's what we do. And so we started to cause a little bit of question, and I told Michelle, I said, hey, let's drive around and take a look. And we crossed City Line Road from the suburb that the school was in, literally on City Line. It probably was not road. That, you know, I'm from the west. Things are roads. And so we crossed, and we went in deeper into the city. And I said, let's, let's drive around and just see what is around this school. And we drove three or four blocks, maybe a quarter of a mile to a half a mile deeper in, and we found deep poverty. And there were cars. I remember seeing cars up on blocks. I remember people just all over the place sitting outside doing all sorts of things. And those people didn't look like me. And they didn't look like the people that I was used to going to school with in high school and in college here at New Mexico State. They didn't look like us. They didn't look like us. They weren't... Hispanic or white, it was a bunch of black people. And I started to feel uncomfortable. And I, I said something about it to Michelle, and she goes, well, how would you feel if we were in El Paso right now in an impoverished neighborhood? And I said, I don't know. It's not that big of a deal. And she goes, well, what about in Carlsbad in the poverty areas there? And that's not a big deal. What about in Las Cruces, Albuquerque? And I realized that I had this blind spot in my life. And I had a prejudice. Understand there is a difference between prejudice and racism. Prejudice comes from... It's prejudging someone. You can see the words prejudge in prejudice, right? In the word pre prejudice. It's prejudging someone. You can prejudge someone because they drive a Honda Prius. And you probably do, right? Are you prejudiced when you see someone driving a, a Honda Prius with like a bumper sticker on the back that says, drill no more or whatever, you know? <laughs> and you can be prejudiced when you see somebody driving a great big diesel pickup that says, no Obama. Like you already know. You're already making a judgment on both sides of that, right? You're prejudging a person based on things that you can see. So we can prejudge people based on their skin color. We can prejudge people based on the clothes that they wear. You can prejudge people based on the houses that they live in. You can drive around this neighborhood right here and prejudge people and think like, oh, everything's good in these people's lives because they live in nice houses. But we don't know what's happening behind the doors of that house. We don't know that the mom has an opiate addiction and that the dad is having an affair and that the kid is feeling severely depressed and is suicidal. 
we can prejudge and have a prejudice against people because of where they live even. What I recognized in that moment is that I had a prejudice against a certain ethnic group that was poor. I had been around a lot of different ethnic groups that were in poverty, and it was, it was, okay. it was just part of life, right? But I needed to do something, and I couldn't do it on my own. I couldn't just say, like, I'm going to get rid of this prejudice. By the way, prejudice and racism are different. I, I, I do not believe to this day that I was in a racist place in my mind. Racism is prejudice plus power. And, and there's a critique of that definition that can easily be made, but just for the sake of conversation, let's go with it for now. Racism is prejudice plus power. So if you have a prejudice towards a certain type of person and you have power to influence that person's life in some way and you're using it because of that prejudice, now we can talk about racism. Remember I told you a few weeks ago one time that I might say things that offend you and you needed to figure out then how you were going to deal with it? You're all looking at me like, oh, we're leaving, dude. We figured out how we're dealing with it. I had to do something. So I started naming it. This is a problem that I have. I've got to overcome it. This is not a way a follower of Jesus should live. I've got to do something about this prejudice. And it was based out of ignorance in my life because I didn't grow up around people of that ethnicity. And so I had to do something about it. I had to get people into my lives. I had to start putting myself in places where I was uncomfortable so that I could become comfortable around really everybody. But I can't do that on my own, so I have to have people that hold me accountable and ask me hard questions and push me in difficult situations. Because left to my own devices, I'm going to do the easy thing because I'm just like Paul and you're just like Paul and we're just like each other in that we have these grand ideas and we want to do the right thing, but for some reason we always end up doing the thing that we don't want to do. Why in the world can't we stop? And I think God is saying, exactly why in the world can't you stop? I've given you everything that you need to stop and to start doing the thing you want to do. Why aren't you using those resources? It's like, you remember the Sandy Hook massacre? Oh, God, may we never experience something like that again. I remember telling a friend of mine who's a pastor in Albuquerque, I'm so tired of praying, how long? How long are we going to have to hear about little kids being slaughtered? Like, how long is this going to go on? I'm tired of praying this prayer, God. And I was telling my friend about it, and he goes, yeah, I get that. But do you ever wonder if God is saying the same thing to you? How long? Before you really start to understand that I came for peace on earth. How long are you going to let these things continue to happen before you start letting love just explode onto all kinds of people and all of their sicknesses? We will never get through 
the things in our lives, small or big, without each other. So accountability comes from a place of love, and the reason we need it is because without it, we're not going to do the things that we say we want to do. How many of you, by show of hands, are a member, like, like, done the whole thing where you become a member of a United Methodist Church? About half of us. The rest of you got some work to do. (laughs) Not really. Just kidding. You're welcome. When you join a Methodist church, if you raised your hands, do you remember what vow you made? Raise your your hand if you remember the vow. I'm not going to call on you, I promise. This is what you promised. You said, I will support this church, and by this church, I I, want to say the body of Christ. I will support this church with my prayers, and my presence, and my gifts, and my service, and my witness. We believe, as United Methodists, that those five things will help us become better disciples of Jesus and help us connect with the Spirit of God in the world more. And this is how it works. We pray. And we pray a lot, and we pray hard, and we pray in a lot of different ways. We pray with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, and we let God break our hearts over both of those things. We pray. We pray for each other. We pray for ourselves. We pray for the world. That's one of the main things that we do. And then we are present. And I'll bet you when you said, hey, I'll be present, you were meaning like, I'll be in church. I'll I'll be here. But here's the thing. Present doesn't just mean be here. When I was in middle school and high school, I used to say present when they would call my name, but I wasn't there. I already told you about Mr. Hewitt, my geometry teacher. He called me out and said, no, you're with those girls right there. We, as United Methodists, United Methodist version of Christians, want to be people who are present. We are there. Wherever it is that we're there, I saw on Instagram a few weeks ago, a friend of mine in Abilene took a picture of a guy in a coffee shop that was sitting at the table drinking coffee, and underneath it she wrote, what kind of, we- uh, what kind of creeper just sits around in a coffee shop drinking coffee? What? Her point was, he's like looking around at people. Instead of on his phone or on Facebook pretending he's working or reading a book, he was present in that moment to whatever God was going to bring into his moment. I'm I'm placing on him something I have no idea, but that's what I would have been hoping for him. I wouldn't have gone to, this guy's creepy. He's just looking around like an axe murderer. (laughs) I would have gone to like, man, this guy's open. He's, He's ready for whatever's coming. That's who we are. We're present at home. We're present in our places of work. And we're present in our church when we're there. And we're present when we're playing wherever it is that we're doing whatever it is that we're doing. That's where we are. I had a seminary professor who at one point in his life had been a Buddhist monk. And um, he taught world religions. He was a fascinating guy. And he said that one day he was at the monastery in India and he was eating breakfast and reading the newspaper like a good American. And the head guy at the Buddhist monastery, I don't know what they call them in Buddhism, But he came over and sat down next to him and he said, Hey, Jacob, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm reading the newspaper and eating breakfast. And the the monk goes, No, you're doing neither of those things. The point being, do the thing that you're doing. Be present. Prayers, presence, gifts. We are people who are generous. 
not just with our finances, but with our finances. But we are generous with our lives. We are willing to give of ourselves. The spiritual gifts that God gives us, we use them. Prayers, presents, gifts, and we serve. Man, we serve. We, when are called upon, will drop in a hundred backpacks in two weeks like it's nothing. When we're called upon, we'll show up to give out food and clothes. When we're called upon, we're going to go build ramps. When we're called upon, we're going to do what it is that needs to be done, and we're going to practice it in church because we serve one another in church even. We serve prayers, presents, gifts, service, and we hope that we are given the opportunity to bear witness to our faith. Whether, Oh, and here's the thing. That involves words. We love to quote that old thing like, preach the gospel and use words if you must. You must. (laughs) You must. You have to bear witness with your words as as to why it is that you do what you do because somebody's going to ask, be prepared to give an answer, Paul says, of why you have hope. The witness looks a different for different people. Some people, they prefer to talk, and that's great. That's called a private witness. And then there's the public witness. A public witness is what you do when you're out. And and some of us get involved in lots of different things in the world because of our faith, and we feel driven to do those things because of our faith. Yesterday, at the protests that turned violent, Man, I hope, they keep saying that there were pastors there, Christian pastors there as the counter-protest. I'm sure they felt driven by the Spirit to be there. My prayer is that they were there to pray and to be peaceful and to, and to bear witness to the love of Jesus Christ. Even for those who think differently than them. Golly, that's hard to do. Because we are filled with prejudice. Prayers, presence, gifts, service, witness. So those of you who raised your hand and said, Ah, I remember those vows. Raise your hand if somebody's asked you in the last 12 months how you're doing on one of those five things. A lot smaller number. And I'll bet you if you raised your hand, somebody asked you about money. I'm going to start asking. How'd you use a spiritual gift this week to help someone? Where did you serve? What are you praying about? How can I join you in that? When's the last time you witnessed God in your life? Like, when's the last time you recognized God? You witnessed God doing something, whether it's in your life or somebody else's. Tell me about that. I need to hear those things. But here's the thing, Morningstar. I'm going to push you, and I'm going to ask those questions because I believe that really is how we get deeper connected to God. But also, in the next few months, I'm going to come to you on a Sunday morning, and I'm going to say, hey, guess what? Outside, when you leave, there are some small group leaders, and you need to go talk to them because you need to be part of that group because we need accountability to growing in our faith. We're going to set up some small groups that meet together throughout the week 
to grow in our faith together, to challenge one another, to cry with each other, to laugh with each other, to be at the hospital when our children are born, to go to funerals when our parents die. We're going to be that kind of church and those kind of people all the time. So be ready. It's not next week. It's not the week after that, I don't think. (laughs) Stuart moves fast. But it's coming. Accountability is vital. Literally a vital part of our faith. Without it, we're going to go the easy path. And we're going to go down, and you're going to look down, and you're going to be like, I thought I was supposed to be up there. But together, we can stay at the elevation that we want to stay at and do the things that we want.